You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We are your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. Okay, so before we get into all the good stuff this episode, um, I just want to recap last week's episode. So last week, we were joined by the amazing Dr. Adrian Chavez, who's a PhD in nutrition, to discuss the autoimmune protocol diet. So we started with an overview of the diet itself, how it came to be popular, and the claims that it makes. We then uh, turned to focus on what autoimmune disorders are, the incredible diversity of them, as well as what inflammation actually means. Um, We dug into the details of the diet, including which foods it quote-unquote allows and which it prohibits before turning toward the data. We spent some time discussing the very limited number of studies out there on the diet and ultimately the substantial flaws in the data that claim to support the autoimmune diet. And finally, we discussed some of the risks associated with implementing a rigid and restrictive elimination diet such as this, and emphasized that healthful diet habits are more important than eliminating entire food groups. Really, our goal with this episode, as with many of our episodes, was to arm you with better information to help you navigate the world of pop culture diets. So if you missed it, please go back and be sure to check it out. And before I let Jess introduce our very special guest, I do want to remind our listeners that yes, we are a podcast, but we also post lots of science content and infographics to multiple social media platforms regularly. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, at Unbiased SciPod. And yes, we are dipping our toes into TikTok. Um, but the other thing is we offer a Substack subscription if you want even more content. Uh, we post content there daily that goes beyond what we share to social media. So it's a lot of extended information. Um, and you can subscribe for $5 a month, which is less than the cost of a Frappuccino. And you can be part of the herd. Uh, membership or a paid subscription allows you to weigh in on podcast and post topics. Um, You get to submit questions for our Heard from the Herd segments on our podcast episodes. It gets you access to our private Facebook group, as well as a monthly live Q&A and even merch discounts. So you can sign up there at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. All right. Well, we're a little uh, starstruck today to introduce our our guest, Dr. Michelle Wong. Dr. Wong is a science educator, chemistry PhD, and cosmetic chemist who's based in Sydney, Australia. She started Lab Muffin almost 10 years ago because she was frustrated that the beauty blogosphere didn't have enough easy to understand explanations of the science behind beauty products. You can find her on on Instagram at Lab Muffin Beauty Science. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me here. For our listeners, if you didn't know, Michelle was just telling us that she organized and attended a sunscreen-specific research conference over the weekend. So the timing for bringing her on could not be better. <laughs> and Michelle, we actually we let our um, our herd know uh, that that you are going to be our guest today, and and everyone was just freaking out. They're all so excited. So really, thank you so much for for sharing your expertise with us. So we just want to set the stage a little bit. Obviously, when we're, when we're talking about sunscreen, we immediately think about skin cancer. So just wanted to present some, um, some skin cancer stats. So skin cancer is the most common cancer in the U.S. and worldwide. One in five Americans will develop skin cancer by the age of 70. It's estimated that approximately 9,500 people in the U.S. are diagnosed with skin cancer every single day. More than two people die of skin cancer in the U.S. every hour. Having five or more sunburns doubles your risk for melanoma. 
But the good news is that when detected early, the five-year survival rate for melanoma is 99%. So that's why there's really a strong emphasis on prevention of skin cancer and, of course, on early detection and treatment. Okay, so... Now that's the little bit of a primer in skin cancer. I just wanted to go through the history of sunscreen. I had to look this up. I thought this was pretty interesting. So ancient Egyptians, they actually used rice, jasmine, and how do I pronounce this, Andrea? Lupine? Lupine? You always Lupine. correct me pronouncing. Lupine, Lupine. extracts. Yeah. I don't know what that is, but maybe it's we'll a talk plant. about that in a little bit. <laughs> oh, okay. There you go. Um, extracts to protect their skin from the sun. Other ancient civilizations followed with their own natural remedies, such as olive oil used by Greeks and pine needles or sunflower oil used by Native Americans. Then in the early 1800s, Hundreds UV rays or ultraviolet rays were discovered by a German scientist named Johann Ritter, and his discovery made it possible to really understand how sunburns occur. Sunscreen makers then use this information to refine their formulas for optimal protection. Then in the 1930s, before sunscreen came to the U.S., it was a popular toiletry item in Australia, and a chemist named Milton Blake created the first successful commercial sunscreens for a company called Hamilton. And you can still buy this line of sunscreens today. I thought that was really cool. So I don't know, Andrea, Michelle, can we dive into some of the basics? You know, what is sunscreen? Let's start there. <laughs> yeah. So Michelle, maybe I can kind of start quickly and then I'm going to really hand it over to you to, to take it from there. So, you know, a broad catch-all sunscreen is is some sort of product that's going to protect against the sun, right? It's screening us from the sun. And in particular, we're talking about ultraviolet radiation or ultraviolet rays, which come from the sun. So, you know, the sun produces energy and ultraviolet energy is just one particular type of energy on what we call our electromagnetic magnetic spectrum. So every source of energy that could be visible light, it could be infrared, it could be microwaves, it could be ultraviolet. Um, these are all different types of energy and these types of energy have what we call wavelengths. And depending on the length of the wavelength, there's an energy value associated with this. So things with longer wavelengths are lower energy and things with shorter wavelengths are higher energy. Um, and so the three broad classes of ultraviolet radiation that, you know, are coming from the sun are ultraviolet A, ultraviolet B, and ultraviolet C. So ultraviolet C actually does not penetrate through the ozone layer. It reacts with ozone. Um, and so from the sun, we are actually not exposed to any ultraviolet C radiation. However, there are some man-made sources such as certain types of ultraviolet lamps and welding torches that can generate UVC. Um, UVA and UVB are really the ones that we're most concerned about. So UVA um, and UVB are associated with aging. Um, so these types of ultraviolet radiation can penetrate the skin layer. I'm going to put a schematic up on the website that have um, the different layers of skin and, and the ways that these light sources can penetrate it. Um, but these penetrate the collagen layer. They can damage it. That can lead to things associated with aging, such as wrinkle formation. Um, and UVB is really the big one, the big player involved with cancer implication. Um, and so UVB radiation can lead to things like DNA damage, which causes, um, so the actual processes involved cause things called thymine dimers or pyrimidine adducts. And so normally our cells have processes to repair these, but in some instances, our cells cannot, and that leads to mutations. Cumulative mutations can ultimately lead to things like cancer. Um, and then, of course, UVB is also associated with sunburn. And I think we'll talk a little bit about how sunburn is implicated in the progression of cancer as well. Um, so, so as Jess already mentioned, melanoma is obviously one of the skin cancers that's of most concern. It's the least prevalent, but it is the most serious. Um, but there are two other types of skin cancers as well that we want to be concerned about, and those are basal and squamous cell carcinomas. And these are, in fact, associated with lifetime exposure to ultraviolet radiation. Um, so melanoma is less often directly associated with UV radiation, but there's an increased risk in people with a history of these other non-melanoma skin cancers and other um, solar damage to the skin, which are indicators of cumulative 
ultraviolet exposure. So ultimately, yes, all of these skin cancers are indeed associated with ultraviolet radiation and and sun exposure. So Jess did a really good job of kind of setting the stage with the with the statistics of skin cancer. But as she mentioned, she was focusing specifically on things like melanoma. Um, but of course, other sorts of non-melanoma skin cancers, such as basal cell and squamous cell carcinomas, affect more than 3 million Americans per year. Um, incidence is indeed increasing um, over the decades. And while not all cases of skin cancer are related to sun exposure, it is a substantial um, contributing factor. And so excess exposure to ultraviolet radiation. Um, that could be from sunlight. It could also be associated with things like indoor tanning beds. Um, it can increase risk for all skin cancer types, as well as personal history or genetic components. Um, the majority of melanoma cases are indeed attributed to ultraviolet exposure. Um, but good news is, research does suggest that regular sunscreen use can reduce those risks. Now, um, and one thing, and I think this is where I'm going to hand it over to you, Michelle, is that um, sunburns indeed have been implicated in increasing the odds or the risk of developing melanoma, um, and that's particularly high risk during childhood or adolescence. So some data suggests that experiencing five or more blistering sunburns, so these are typically going to be second-degree burns, truly, um, between the ages of 15 and 20 can increase uh, an individual's melanoma risk by 80% and increase non-melanoma risk by 68%. And of course, exposure to tanning beds increases that risk as well, including early onset melanoma, particularly for women younger than 30. But I know, Michelle, you wanted to make a distinction here because um, some of these data are specific to certain skin types. Yeah, so just like with so many other areas of medicine and science, most of the studies have been done on white people rather than on other types of skin. And the big issue with this is that skin of different colors obviously has different amounts of melanin. Melanin is fantastically protective against UVB if you have enough of it. And because if it's your skin color, then it's permanently there. It's almost like permanent sunscreen. And so it's been found that for darker skin types, particularly for black skin, which um, Dr. Adewal Adamson has done a lot of research on if you want to look, his, uh, look up his work, for black skin, it doesn't seem like sun exposure is that big an issue in terms of development of melanoma, as well as the other two types of non-melanoma skin cancer. That's so interesting. So so I think an obvious question becomes here, right? So when we're exposed to the sun, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know, kind of balancing sun exposure and the risks of potential skin cancer in, in a second, I think. But we know that when we're exposed to the sun, it damages our cells and it elicits this process that triggers what you know in particular white people are fair skinned to produce melanin so if you're saying that people who have naturally higher melanin are at lower risk of skin cancers you know the question or the obvious question might be raised by some people well should i just get a tan and will that then protect me from skin cancer if i have fairer skin yeah that's a very fair i guess logical um next step but unfortunately a base tan in white skin has a very low protective factor so it's really if your skin is naturally dark then you do have that built-in protection but but unfortunately, if you just keep on exposing your skin and forcing your skin to turn that dark kind of unnaturally, I mean, white people generally have evolved in places where you generally don't get a tan. Um, all of this recent migration is relatively recent. Your skin hasn't really had the chance to properly evolve to be in these sunny locations. So I come from Australia, so I'm a bit biased here, I guess. I get to see lots of very pale people in a place that has extremely high UV, and that's why we have such a high risk, high rate of skin cancer. Um, and as you said, um, if you have tanning beds, for example, tanning beds have um, are very strongly associated with melanoma, which is one of the more deadly skin cancers. Yeah, I guess the short story is... Um, if you naturally have it, that's great. Um, don't try to get it unnaturally. So I guess what you're saying, and this is a question that Nicole from our herd asked, is um, there is no such thing as a safe tan, ultimately. Yeah, exactly. Um, no safe, intentional tan. That's good to know. So people, if you have naturally dark skin because you have natural production of melanin, it seems like 
you're protected to a degree for for these types of skin cancers. But if you're white or fair skinned and you intentionally try and try to tan, that's that's not doing you any favors. Um, So, you know, we've talked a little bit about now, you know, I think it's pretty well established that there are indeed some risks of sun exposure. And and I know we're going to get into, you know, sunscreen and its role there in a second. But but I think it's also important to note that there are some benefits of sun exposure. Right. And, you know, I was pulling some some epidemiological data from the WHO and they were finding that, you know, UV radiation is exposure does indeed contribute to the world disease burden. However, when they actually looked at the global contribution of all sorts of different things that cause disease pathology, they would characterize that as a minor contributor, 0.1% of the total global disease burden. But it's also estimated that um, about 2.21% of global annual disease burden may be associated with a reduced exposure to UV radiation. So, you know, I think there's a a complex interplay here where too much sun or unprotected sun exposure is not good for these types of skin cancer and premature aging, but there also seems to be some health benefit associated with true exposure to sun. So, obviously the first thing is Um, We are able to synthesize vitamin D from cholesterol in our bodies after sun exposure. And I'll put a little schematic of how this works here. Um, But this is super important because vitamin D is critical to maintain calcium and phosphorus levels. um, And those things support most of our metabolic functions. They support neuromuscular transmission and, and muscle function. And they're also really important with regard to bone mineralization. And that's particularly true true during childhood. So a deficiency in vitamin C in children, a severe deficiency can cause a a disorder called rickets. And this is characterized by bowing of the legs and other sorts of mineralization issues. Vitamin D is also involved in immune system function. And we've heard a lot about that during COVID, um, where people are like, well, I'm just going to supplement with vitamin D and that's going to, you know, prevent me from getting infected. Now, that's not necessarily the case, but vitamin D is critical um, with regard to regulating immune immune responses, regulating the persistence and survival of immune cells. And this is both direct and indirect via the calcium levels that vitamin D help maintain. There's also some involvement with regard to our sleep cycles, with regard to melatonin and serotonin, which also can impact mood. Um, so data have suggested that getting some sunlight or bright artificial light in the morning can actually lead to production of your nocturnal melatonin earlier in the day, and that can facilitate ease of sleep. Um, and melatonin can also be synthesized from serotonin, and we tend to find higher serotonin levels during longer days, more sun exposure. So there's a little bit of a feedback loop there. Um, There is some correlative data that suggests that there may be some risks of other cancer types aside from skin cancer associated with too little vitamin D, such as Hodgkin's lymphoma, breast, ovarian, colon, pancreatic, prostate, and some other cancers. These have been found to be associated with higher latitude living. And this higher latitude living has also been potentially implicated in things like hypertension, multiple sclerosis, and type 2 diabetes. But I really want to note here that these are all correlations so far. There's no causative relationship that has been identified yet. But it's important to remember that because vitamin D is involved with a variety of cellular processes, um, you know, it very well could be involved in some of these other things. So I think it's really important to emphasize that we want we want a balance with sun exposure. But Um, You know, I think this is a great time to now get into how we can actually make that safer with sunscreen. So, Michelle, can you kind of give us um, a primer of, you know, what sort of exposure are we looking for for things like vitamin D and how we can really make this safer? Maybe we can talk a little about the UV index and and what that really means for people on a functional basis. Yeah. So my favorite recommendations for balancing sun protection versus synthesis of vitamin D and also those other things. So one of the other things that we do get from the sun um, that seems to be important for health is nitric oxide. 
Um, so the recommendation from the Australian Health Authorities, which is a collaboration between dermatologists, the Endocrine Society, Bone and Cancer Organisations, um, is that you should have some sort of sun protection, which includes sunscreen when the UV index is three or over, and don't use sun protection and try to get some intentional sun exposure when the UV index is two or below in the middle of the day. So depending on where you are in the world, then this will change a bit. So in Australia, for example, this means that you pretty much need sun protection most of the year. There'll be one or two months where you might not have sun protection and possibly try to get intentional sun exposure. Um, it's good to keep in mind that these guidelines are developed for lighter skin. So some people with darker skin, obviously there is that melanin again and it's harder to make vitamin D. So the best thing to do there is go to your doctor, maybe get a blood check and see what your vitamin D levels are and maybe discuss supplementation. Because even though the risks of sun exposure aren't as high if your skin is darker, there is still a bit of, I guess, uncertainty around that. So I think it's always best to just talk with your doctor and see if you should perhaps be taking a supplement. That's a great point, Michelle. And I think it's also important to note that, especially in industrialized countries, a lot of our foods are fortified with vitamin D, milk products, cereals, other sorts of grains as well. So, you know, most people with some baseline sun exposure, you know, daylight exposure and eating some of these foods that may in fact be fortified, um, generally that can reduce your risk of any sort of vitamin D deficiency. All right, so let's really get into it. Let's talk about sunscreen and really how it works. So, Michelle, can you kind of give us a rundown? So we've talked a lot about ultraviolet radiation. So how does sunscreen actually help protect our skin and our bodies from ultraviolet radiation? So, yeah, this is my favorite topic, sunscreen chemicals. <laughs> um, so sunscreen has well, ingredients in it that can absorb UV. So basically it's on your skin. It can absorb the UV before the UV has a chance to hit your skin and get into the DNA and all of those other things inside your skin that it messes up. So the ingredients in sunscreen are largely divided into organic and inorganic. So commonly this is called chemical versus physical sunscreens. There is a really big thing about like how different they are, but to be honest, they're not actually that different. Both of them mostly work in the same way, which is they absorb UV and they convert it to other forms of less harmful energy, and that is mostly heat. Um, some people are a bit scared of that heat and they think, maybe it'll make my skin heat up, but it is a really honestly tiny amount of heat. So I did a little experiment where I went into the sun with an infrared camera to try to see if you could actually see the difference between chemical and physical sunscreens and how much heat was actually being produced. And the amount is tiny, which makes sense because humans are mostly water and water takes a lot of energy to heat up. So yeah. Um, My, uh, that high specific, <laughs> high specific energy, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think I had a look at it and it was like the amount of heat you're getting from sunscreen is less than like the difference between the two sunscreens and the difference between sunscreen and non-sunscreen skin is smaller than the difference between your wrist and your elbow in terms of heat. So it is really tiny. And it seems to be very, very efficient then if, you know, if the difference between non-sunscreen skin and sunscreen skin, the amount of heat that you're generating by the absorption of those ultraviolet radi radiation waves, that seems to be a, an efficient process then. Yeah. So most of that UV is converted if you're wearing enough, of course. Mm -hmm, which we will get into. So, so okay, so there are chemical and there are physical, and physical are often called mineral sunscreens. So what are kind of the common ingredients that, you know, they're both going to have? And, and it's funny because you say chemical versus physical, but you know, as we've talked about at length, everything is chemical. So they they all they all are you know considered chemicals in in a in a true sense. So maybe you can kind of dissect you know which which ingredients are we going to find in in the two different categories, and maybe when might someone consider one type over another? I think where it comes from is really the best way of dividing our two types of sunscreen ingredients is calling them organic versus inorganic. So organic in chemistry means that they're carbon-based, they have a carbon backbone, whereas inorganic means that they are 
um, ionic compounds. So that's what we kind of colloquially refer to as minerals. So the organic or chemical sunscreens are the ones with scary sounding names, like more complex chemical names. So things like oxybenzone, avobenzone, um, some of them are really long. So yeah, they, they can get much longer. I think in America, they tend to have shorter names because you do have less sunscreen ingredients available, which we will probably discuss at some point. Um, with the mineral sunscreens, those are zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. So the, the names are a bit friendlier, which I think is also why there's a lot of fear mongering about the organic sunscreens, whereas the inorganic sunscreens kind of get away with um, looking very good. I think there's also this perception that when people see like a mineral sunscreen, it's it's almost a little bit of like an appeal to nature when in reality they, they are all chemical compounds. They're just different structural chemical compounds. Exactly. And also they tend to be synthetic anyway, because in nature, if you try to mine zinc oxide, usually it's contaminated with a lot of heavy metals. And that's the case with a lot of minerals in nature. Even though they are technically natural, um, usually they end up being synthesized in the lab and they end up being safer synthesized in the lab because you can get pure zinc and then turn it into pure zinc oxide without all of the other heavy metals contaminating it. Right. And heavy metal exposure can be a legitimate risk to people. So, you know, again, nature is not always better. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, why, you know, aside from clever marketing and the the friendliness of the word, so to speak, um, why might one be preferred over another? Or is there really no reason to prefer one over another? And really, you just want to use, you know, what's best for your skin your skin condition itself, you know, maybe maybe someone who's acne prone might prefer something different or, you know, some of those things. So I'd love to hear um, your thoughts on that, Michelle. So my very general rule of thumb is if your biggest problem with sunscreen is that it feels too heavy or it's uncomfortable um, or it looks too white, then go for a chemical sunscreen, one of the ones with those organic filters. If your biggest problem with sunscreen is that it feels irritating on your skin, then go for a physical sunscreen. All right. Are there any considerations for certain age groups? You know, I, I we've we've gotten a lot of messages um, from parents in you know specifically with regard to what's best to apply to their children. There aren't really any specific recommendations. I think the only recommendation is if they're below, I believe, three months of age then you shouldn't apply sunscreen to your child and just try to cover them up with clothing. But I think above that, I, I think it's three months. It could be six. <laughs> um, okay. There is a, um, yeah, there's there's an age recommendation. Um, but beyond that, it isn't really to do with um, the sunscreen ingredients. So I'm going to try and do a TLDR for everybody. So basically what, what Michelle is saying is that you've got two classes of sunscreens. They both serve to absorb the ultraviolet radiation and convert it into a safer version of energy. And this happens to be heat, which we wouldn't even feel as we're applying sunscreen because there's really no difference between that and, and non-sunscreen skin. Um, but they're marketed or they're labeled as chemical versus physical and physical sometimes termed mineral. Um, and so chemical sunscreens are using organic chemicals, whereas mineral sunscreens are using inorganic chemicals. They both work pretty similarly in the end. Um, and ultimately, there's really no safety or health reason to use one over the other. Um, but if you're looking for something that doesn't, if you have more sensitive skin that's more prone to irritation, maybe you want to choose a mineral or a physical sunscreen. Um, but if you don't like the feel of the weight of a sunscreen, then maybe you want to choose a chemical sunscreen. All right. So say we're a consumer, we're heading to the store and we're trying to pick an appropriate sunscreen. So we've kind of narrowed down that both classes of sunscreen are going to do a good job at protecting our skin from the damaging effects of ultraviolet radiation. But what are the other things that we want to look for in sunscreen? And maybe, Michelle, you can start us with um, what SPF means. How does it actually apply? You know, what does the number actually mean? Um, and what should we actually be looking for with regard to SPF? So SPF is the most important thing on a sunscreen label. Um, it stands for sun protection factor, and it tells you how well that sunscreen protects against erythemal UV. And what that means is UV that causes reddening of the skin. So that is mostly UVB plus a little bit of UVA. 
So the bigger the SPF number, the more protective it is. And mathematically, um, it means that it's, so let's say we have SPF 50, that means it's letting in 1 50th of that erythemal UV. If it's SPF 30, then it's letting in 1 30th. Um, if you apply it at the recommended amount, which to be honest, not many people do. Um, but yeah, so um, the protection is proportional to that number. So if you're, let's say we have SPF 25 versus SPF 50, SPF 50 is letting in half the amount of UV compared to SPF 25. So should we be aiming for the highest SPF available or are there considerations where we would seek a lower SPF value? So higher SPF is in general better, but the sort of... Um, the caveat there is that higher SPFs tend to feel a bit less pleasant. So because they're going to have more of those sunscreen chemicals, there's less room inside the formula for the formulator to deal with other things like how it feels, how smoothly it applies, um, that sort of thing. So in general, I think if you're just going about your everyday life, then SPF 30 is probably a good amount. I think the recommendation used to be SPF 15 for daily use, but these days the formulas for SPF 30 are already really lovely. So I think SPF 30 is really good for everyday use. If you're planning to go into the sun, um, very intense sunlight, so for example if you're skiing or if you're at the beach, then I would recommend higher, so SPF 50. Um, if The higher you go, the problem is that it actually gets less reliable in terms of testing. So it's quite difficult to test higher SPFs. And it was only in, I think, 2019 that there was a new standard brought in that made it easier to test higher um, SPFs. And that hasn't entirely rolled out yet. So um, the results of that haven't really been confirmed very well. So that's why a lot of countries have actually limited the maximum SPF claim. The US, I believe, can you can claim quite high. I think there's a law coming in next year or later this year, which limits it to, I think, SPF 60. Yeah, um, I think most, I just read that too. And it's and now they're allowed to say like 60 plus, but they can't make a definitive number statement beyond that. Yeah, and I think that's a good thing because if the results aren't reliable, then maybe you're buying... Like if you're buying SPF 100 versus SPF 80, maybe the 100 isn't actually better than the SPF 80 and it's really just marketing. So I think it's good that they're putting that limit in. The EU and Australia have had that limit for a while. I am a scientist. All right, time to get a little personal. I'm going to share what I like to sleep in. I'm a really hot sleeper, so I tend to gravitate towards really light, soft things. But I sleep in whatever I could pull from the dresser, like an old t-shirt and cotton shorts. But I recently tried out Cozy Earth's bamboo PJs, and they are to die for. Literally one of the most comfortable things I've ever worn. I'm not kidding. Our listeners have heard us talk about the sheets, so I'm really happy to share that their pajamas are just as amazing. Just like their sheets, the pajamas are moisture wicking and temperature regulating, and you can try them risk-free for 100 nights. Most importantly, we have you covered with a discount code. The code is good site-wide. It's for 40% off and it's the highest discount that they offer. So after you add your items to your cart, enter code UNBIASEDSCIPOD40 at checkout. That's U-N-B-I-A-S-E-D-S-C-I-P-O-D 40 at checkout and save 40% off your purchase. You can thank us later. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Okay, so SPF, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, especially if you're going to be in direct sun, it's better to use something like 50 or higher. Um, If you're going to be just doing everyday things, you know, just kind of going about your day, SPF 30 is probably sufficient. Um, And you mentioned that this relates to the sun protection factor, right? How much of that, um, you know, radiation that caused reddening of the skin, you know, this, this removes essentially. But is there a time component there? Is there something about... Like, does F- is SPF rated simply for the the level, or is it also related to the duration? It's related to the level, but that's also related to the duration. Because if you think about it, if you need like one hundred percent of a dose to get reddening, if your sunscreen is limiting that to one fiftieth, that would be limiting it to two percent. You would need. Like it would take 50 times as long to get up to that 100%. So that's that whole time thing. But in reality, your sunscreen is probably going to wear off before you get to that time. And that's because the sunscreen layer itself will start bunching up and like cracking. It's sort of like foundation. Um, If you're wearing foundation for too long, then it starts to bunch up and you get uneven foundation. Same thing with sunscreen. So we see a lot of other things on the label, right? SPF is clearly the the biggest thing we want to look for. We want to find something that's protective, but there's all these other terms, things like water resistant and broad spectrum. And so can you kind of, you know, outline what are these other factors? What are considerations that the consumer should make when they're trying to select an appropriate sunscreen? So broad spectrum means that the sunscreen protects against UVB as well as UVA. So I would recommend just always going for broad spectrum because you always want that UVA protection because UVA can be linked to other issues like skin aging, but also possibly melanoma. I think it's always safer to just have broad spectrum. In Australia, above a certain SPF, everything has to be broad spectrum. um, And I think most countries should really introduce that. Now, you did also mention the third thing that is actually legally regulated, which is water resistance. Um, So water resistance is tested by putting the sunscreen on someone, putting them into a pool of water for a set amount of time, and then retesting how much protection they get. So if it's, let's say, four hours water resistance or 80 minutes water resistance, that means that's that sunscreen has been tested for that amount of time to stay on the skin and give that same protection. Now, they are sitting in a pool for this test. So if you're swimming, then you're moving around a lot more. And so that sunscreen is probably going to wear off before that set amount of time. So usually on the sunscreen bottle, it still says reapply every two hours um, or reapply after Um, going into the water or after towel drying. So I highly recommend doing that because, yeah, that water resistance test is not really how we normally put sunscreen on and then hang out in water. (laughs) I'm just imagining a bunch of people like floating in the ocean, completely stationary. No, it's a great point. So, so Michelle, I assume that the same would be true for sweating. So say you're, you know, I'm a runner, um, I'm going out for a run, I'm putting sunscreen on and I'm sweating. I assume that that's going to have the same effect as sitting in water or swimming in water where, you know, it's going to get washed off. Is that, is that appropriate? Yeah, it's pretty similar. There is water going over it, but also sweat comes from under the sunscreen. And so there's actually a lot of talk at the moment about setting up a standard way of testing sweat resistance. I think at the moment it's like they get someone to go on a stair stepper for a certain amount of time and get their heart rate up to a certain amount, like to a certain rate, or um, or looking at how much sweat is actually going over the sunscreen patch and then testing it. But yeah, there isn't really a standard test. But in general, if a sunscreen is water resistant, it tends to also be resistant to other things such as sweat and also sand. Yeah, sand resistance is another mm. one of those things where there's not a standard test yet, but there's a lot of talk about making a standard test. But for now, really looking for water resistance is a good idea if you're doing anything that requires a lot of moving or a lot of water. All right. So what about some of these other things that we sometimes see with with certain sunscreens, things like tinted sunscreens or untinted, and then other sorts of things maybe like the the formulation of them. So there's a lo- there's a lot of different types, right? There are, there are aerosol sunscreens, there are lotion sunscreens, there's even powder sunscreens. So what about some of these other maybe less important for sun protection but maybe important for personal use? I think 
having a sunscreen that you enjoy using is super important because if you don't enjoy using it, you probably aren't going to use it as much and you won't use enough of it. So yeah, texture is really important. And this has been found in studies as well, in consumer studies. The nicer the texture of a sunscreen, the more you're likely to apply and reapply and get the actual recommended protection that's on the label. Um, it's also important to look at the price as well. Again, if it's not within your budget, you are probably going to skimp on it. And the problem is if you don't apply enough sunscreen, you're not getting the label protection. Now for tinting, tinting is important for um, sunscreens with more white cast. So this tends to be the mineral sunscreen. So if you have darker skin, then this helps get rid of that whiteness a bit and it ensures that you can apply enough. On top of that, there is a bit of research showing that if you have darker skin, then visible light can also darken hyperpigmentation. So if you have darker skin and you have um, uneven dark patches that you're trying to get rid of, um, if you have melasma, then looking for a tinted sunscreen might be good. Alternatively, there's also research that shows that maybe wearing a foundation would work just as well. So maybe wear a foundation on top of your sunscreen. So yeah, that's just something to think about. In terms of the different forms of sunscreen, the best form of sunscreen is probably just a simple lotion. Lotions are emulsions, they apply really evenly, they tend to apply the most even layer on skin, which means that you get really even protection. One of the issues with skin is that it's bumpy, and so a lot of the time, if you put on the sunscreen, then it tends to fill the sort of valleys of your skin before it covers the hills. But emulsions tend to work the best. Um, there are also powder sunscreens, which a lot of people are tempted to use because they seem so convenient, but they just don't really work that well because they can't stick to the skin enough. And the FDA's new monograph that's coming out soon will not have powders on it. So they've considered adding powders as a um, legitimate form of sunscreen, and they've just decided not to. So I think that's a really good indication that powders probably aren't that good for your main form of sun protection. So I actually have a, a question here. We um, we heard from Amanda, who's a member of our herd. She had a question that I think is relevant to what you're talking about now. So a lot of um, cosmetic products, makeup now has SPF built into it. And so Amanda was wondering, does using more than one form of sunscreen or more than one sunscreen containing product increase the level of protection overall? So let's say, you know, you're using moisturizer with SPF and then foundation with SPF and pressed powder and so on. Is there this, you know, uh, is there some sort of layering of protection? There does seem to be. Um, so it does seem that if you apply more layers of SPF products, you do end up with higher protection overall. But the problem with that is that if you put on, the more layers you put on, the more likely you are to disturb the lower layers. And there's only so much you can fit on your face. So it could be that when you're applying powder, then you're rubbing off some of the foundation underneath. When you're putting on foundation, you're rubbing off some of the sunscreen underneath. So I think it's just really sensible to start with the right base layer of sunscreen, maybe have a slightly higher SPF than you need. And then with your other products on top, then at least you have that base layer and you don't have to rely on those extra layers of SPF that could or could not be adding extra sun protection. So, um, you know, I think we're going to get into, you know, actual application in a minute, but I think right here, Michelle, is a great opportunity to talk about um, the chemicals themselves and, you know, whether there are in fact true risks, um, you know, so maybe we can start about risk to the individual. Because, of course, if you go on a lot of these websites that spread misinformation or unverified mis misinformation, there's a lot of claims about the harms of particularly the chemical sunscreens we discussed, um, oxybenzone I hear a lot, avobenzone. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that and bring in that... There's a new rule um, from the FDA regarding 12 sunscreen chemicals where basically they're saying that they want they just want some extended research on them. Um, and a lot of people have become fearful that now they're saying that they're not, in fact, safe to use. So maybe you can address some of that. 
To start off with, um, if you look at those FDA studies, they always emphasize that these studies do not mean that sunscreen is unsafe to use. Um, They say that right out in the study. So I think it's important to note that. And I think that's really quite reassuring. So the background of the study is that the FDA assumed that if there was less than half a nanogram per milliliter of a particular chemical that you were putting on um, on your skin going into the blood, then it would be safe by default. Now, if you have a level higher than this, it doesn't mean that it's unsafe. It just means that the FDA wants additional information to make sure that it's safe because it seems like there's enough going into your skin that it could potentially be causing some sort of effect. So, yeah, back in the day, everyone assumed that skin was inert and it was a perfect barrier. Um, But obviously, as science has developed, it's become very clear that some things can penetrate the skin. And so now that they've discovered um, that these sunscreen chemicals can penetrate the skin and you can get above half a nanogram per milliliter, they want more information. So that is where it's at. Um, I've seen some places say that um, the F- like these sunscreen chemicals are getting into the blood above the FDA um, safety level. And yeah, that's, not, that's just not true. That's just the safe by default level. Um, So right now, the FDA is waiting for more information on um, a lot of these so-called chemical sunscreens. But if we go to the EU, where these chemicals are all approved and they've been um, assessed repeatedly for decades, um, I think the most recent assessments were even uh, late last year. So they've been approved and their safety has been assessed and reassessed continuously, and they are still considered safe in the EU. Um, A lot of people consider the EU's regulation a bit more advanced because they do tend to revisit it a lot more. So yeah, these are safe in the EU. They're most likely going to be found safe in the US as well. So, so, um, you know, Michelle, you make a, a lot of really important distinctions. The first is that, you know, a half a nanogram per mil is a, a very, very small amount of any sort of chemical. Um, and those are kind of those baseline criteria for for really anything. Um, but the fact that we have more data from the EU demonstrating that these chemicals are, in fact, safe. Um, a lot of what I see, you know, from kind of a immunologist who does a lot of cancer research now is that, you know, these websites that are claiming that all these chemicals and sunscreen are so harmful, they're looking at copious levels of these where cells in culture in a petri dish have been just blasted with these isolated chemicals and are like oh well you know it it caused you know cancer cells to grow in culture and and that's not how it works in an organism first of all um but you know as Jess and I emphasize all the time the dose makes the poison and so in reality anything nearly anything can cause cancer, nearly anything can be toxic, even water at a certain dose. And so, you know, it's important to keep those things in mind when you're seeing some of these clickbait headlines that are now, you know, misinterpreting what this FDA proposal means and, and really what the functional exposure to these chemicals are when you're using sunscreen. So, I think my big takeaway is that, you know, more research is always better because it's going to allow them to verify and validate what we've we've already seen with other countries, as you mentioned, with the EU. Um, But just because something in isolation at an extremely high dose can be potentially harmful does not mean that that the sunscreens themselves are harmful. Yeah, exactly. So um, a lot of the studies that have people have pointed to showing that sunscreen chemicals are harmful, like you said, they're not in comparable conditions to humans. So to convert it to what happens in a human, there's a complicated process. So they're going to have to look at um, what the exposure is like, what exposure is likely in a human. So for example, if it's done in a rat, there are um, there are well-established ways of converting rat data to human data. And so once you convert it, you, can't, you might find that it is completely safe in a human. And this is exactly what happens a lot of the time. So I do really like the way the EU does it because they have these publicly available reports that steps through all of the logic they take. So they look at all of the available studies and they convert it to human impact. So some of them 
they'll say this is just not relevant to humans. Some of them, they'll say, well, it caused this effect in a rat, but if we look at what happens in a human, then we would have to convert it to this, and it's likely to have this level of effect. So yeah, I highly recommend reading through those reports if you're interested in more of the nitty-gritty behind how these sort of safety assessments are done. That's a great point, Michelle. And and um, we can actually put some of those up on our show notes with this episode. But, you know, I think the big takeaway for people is that, you know, at these levels that are being used in humans, in these sunscreen formulations, there's no risk. And what they are, in fact, doing is preventing your skin from absorbing ultraviolet radiation. But I think another question that comes up a lot is with regard to environmental impact. And particularly, um, you know, we hear a lot about the reef safe sunscreens and, and all that. So Nicole from our herd really wants to know what the story is with regard to sunscreen and the potential reef effects. So this was actually a really fantastic talk at the conference that um, me and Jen of the EcoWell ran last weekend. Um, We had a talk from an environmental toxicologist and she went through all of the data that we had available on reef effects. And basically the amounts that are always used in studies are really, really high. So what they do is they take... um, they take corals and then they put in really high amounts of sunscreens and then they measure what effects that had on the coral. So some of these effects will are biologically relevant, so they're like killing the coral. Some of the effects are less relevant, so sometimes it's just changes in the coral that aren't necessarily um, good or bad. So based on these studies, um, that's how all of this reef-safe sunscreen stuff came about. Um, they found that having coral in high concentrations of sunscreen was causing harm, including bleaching. However, when scientists went into the environment and sampled waters around reefs, they found that the amount of sunscreen was actually way lower than what they were they needed in these studies to cause harm to the coral. So um, there's a professor in Australia, Professor Terry Hughes, who is one of the top coral scientists in the world. Um, he's very, very famous for his coral um, research and advocacy. Um, and he's noted that the places where you have the most coral bleaching usually are the places that you have the least tourists. So they're the places where you would actually find the least sunscreen. He's also said that if you were to make a list of all the things that were threatening coral, sunscreen would be maybe number 200. So there could potentially be impacts of sunscreen on coral, but at the moment with the evidence, it just looks very unlikely. It seems like any sunscreen that's getting into the water will be diluted or it might be binding to sediment uh, before it gets anywhere near coral. And so, yeah, it's highly unlikely that there is any impact on coral unless, of course, you literally have your sunscreen on your skin and you swim to the reef and touch the coral, which does happen if you're if you're planning to do some like reef tourism. So maybe in that case, maybe think about wearing less sunscreen, Um, maybe wear some sunscreens that haven't been found to have these effects. Um, yeah, maybe wear some protective clothing instead. But otherwise, if you're just at the beach or if you're um, playing sports and you're worried about it washing down the drain when you shower, then it's probably not a big concern. That's a great distinction. And I think it's also important to note, like, coral's a living organism. So if you're doing, you know, reef snorkeling or anything, you probably shouldn't be touching the coral anyway because you could damage it with the physical contact. <laughs> so so I guess the big takeaway is, you know, sunscreen, again, the dose makes the poison, right? Sunscreens applied to corals in a simulated lab environment could exert some effects on coral, including bleaching. But in real-world practice, there's really no evidence to demonstrate that, you know, some Sunscreen usage and application by people is a big driver with regard to coral bleaching and and dying off of coral and other, other potential marine effects. Okay, so let's maybe, I think we're kind of getting into um, the final chunks of topics. So, you know, we've kind of narrowed down, okay, ultraviolet radiation. We've talked a lot about that. We've talked about how sunscreen works. We've talked about some of the the chemophobia and how there's really no reason to fear these chemicals in the sunscreens. We've selected our type of sunscreen based on preferences and SPF requirement. What about how do we actually apply it, right? Because as you alluded to, Michelle, most people are not 
not applying it properly. You're not using the right amount. Um, they're not reapplying frequently enough. Um, so so what, what should we really be doing here? So the most important thing with sunscreen is applying enough because if you're not applying enough, you're not getting the right amount of like sunscreen film on your skin. So it's sort of like paint, I guess. Um, you want to have enough of those sunscreen chemicals spread properly on your skin to be able to absorb the UV. So the recommended amount is two milligrams per square centimeter, which is the amount that they use in testing. And this translates to about a quarter teaspoon for just your face, half a teaspoon for your face, neck and ears, one teaspoon for each of your arms, your legs, the front of your torso, and the back of your torso. Okay, that's helpful. And maybe we'll convert that into like a little chart that we'll put up on the website so folks can use that as a reference. But I would wager based on those quantities that that most people are, are probably not using enough sunscreen. So I think it's a great distinction to make. Um, what about after you apply it, you know, waiting time? I know a lot of the bottles say you have to wait X amount of time before going outside or going into the water or, or things like that. Yeah, so the wait time is so that sunscreen has time to form a film and dry. Again, it's sort of like paint. Like if you move around too quickly, then it rubs off. Um, your movement might actually disturb it. So you, you want to wait for it to dry down. And usually that recommended amount is 15 to 20 minutes. So yeah, follow the bottle directions. Try to do that before you go into the sun. Um, it's also good because sometimes like you go to the beach and then you put on sunscreen and in the time between you getting to the beach, getting into the sun and getting the sunscreen on, you might have already received quite a lot of UV. So it's good to always do it before you go into the sun. That's a great point. And I have to say, I'm I'm guilty of that. I usually wait until I get set up and I strip down to my bathing suit and then I'm like, oh, hurry, I'm going to lather up. And I know it is not the right way to do it. Um, you know, I want to bring up a question. I can't remember. I, I was listening to to um, another chemist uh, on a podcast uh, a few months ago, but they were talking about, you know, some of the misconceptions about sunscreen and, and some of it was about when you're applying, are you supposed to vigorously rub it in or are you supposed to apply it, like you said, kind of like paint and let it dry? And there was some evidence to suggest that rubbing it in actually meant that it was penetrating below the layers of skin that you really wanted to protect. And and I'm curious, you know, if you have any insight about the actual, you know, process of applying. Yeah, so I think the evidence was actually if you rub it in, you're actually rubbing some of it off as well. Mm -hmm. um, and okay. so you're not actually getting the right amount of sunscreen. So yeah, vigorous rubbing has been shown to reduce the SPF. So I would recommend just like spreading it gently and then maybe rubbing a little bit, but no vigorous rubbing. Um, one method that I've seen is dotting it around wherever you're applying it and then rubbing it on. And so that way you also make sure that you've got it evenly applied on your skin. Ah, great tip. Great tip. Another question related to this is storage of sunscreen, right? So we're applying it and then what well, we throw it in our beach bag and, you know, it's, it's warming up. We know that, you know, heat or changes in temperature can cause chemical changes in structures. We know that they denature proteins. Obviously these aren't proteins, but does that damage or reduce the shelf life of the sunscreen? Does it reduce the efficacy or the SPF of the sunscreen? What is best practice for storing those sunscreens? So keeping the sunscreen cool is very important. So sunscreens are emulsions, which means that they're um, what we call kinetically stable and not thermodynamically stable. So what that means is it's a mixture of oily stuff and watery stuff, and it's spread out into little bubbles. And in reality, oil and water want to separate. They don't want to stay mixed together but we want it mixed together in the sunscreen so that it works properly, so that it spreads out evenly, it's not separated. So storing sunscreen at cool temperatures is important. So try not to just leave it in like a dark colored beach bag or anything and leave it in the sun at the beach. Try to keep it cool. Um, also don't freeze it either because freezing also separates emulsions. Um, it also makes the oil and the water separate, which means that the ingredients dissolved in the oil and the water also separate, which means that, yeah, your sunscreen doesn't apply correctly anymore. In terms of the chemicals breaking down, that can also happen as well. But in general, it seems like it, heat is possibly worse for mineral sunscreens, even though zinc oxide and titanium dioxide are quite stable in terms of um, their chemical structures won't change based on the amount of heat. And that's because um, zinc oxide and titanium dioxide are super dense 
chemicals. And so they settle out of sunscreens quite easily if the emulsion gets disturbed, which it will if you heat it up too much. So everybody, you can think of your sunscreens as salad dressing, um, basically. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Where you want to keep it at a stable temperature to make sure everything stays suspended in there. So Michelle, if someone does leave their sunscreen in their beach bag and it gets hot, it's a, it's, you know, it's, say, a single cycle of heat cool, would you say that, it you know, they should probably toss it and replace it? Or, you know, I'm trying to also be, you know, cognizant of the cost, right? Yeah. Um, so what's kind of the recommendation if if you forget and, and you misstore it? It's really hard to give, like, a good recommendation because the safest thing to do is always just to get a new sunscreen. But at the same time, I think a lot of people do do this and it isn't too bad. So I would probably say at minimum, replace your sunscreen every season. Um, So after one summer, get a new sunscreen and hopefully you would have used it up anyway because you do need to apply about a shot glass um, to your whole body and you should be reapplying as well if you're staying in the sun. Um, Yeah, so minimum one per season. If you've left it really hot for a long time, then maybe consider using it up Um, in situations where you get less sun exposure and buy a new one for if you've got really high sun exposure. So say you had an SPF 50, but you left it out in the heat. Maybe you can assume that it now has a functional SPF 30 for your day-to-day basis. Yeah, I think that's a safe approach. Obviously, I know you're a chemist, you know, you're focused on the actual, you know, efficacy and principles of sunscreen, but do you have any particular ones that you like, um, maybe that you might recommend um, that are, you know, as you mentioned, pleasant to use or, or, um, you know, coat very evenly or are cost effective for some of our listeners? Because, you know, there are so many brands out there. There are so many different formulations. There are so many different, you know, targeted ads. Um, It can be pretty overwhelming for people to try and pick the best sunscreen. Yeah, it's really hard to say which one's the best because everyone has slightly different needs. Um, So if If you have oily skin or if you have dry skin, then you might find different sunscreens better. But some of the really popular ones that I quite enjoy are um, there's the Bondi Sands Fragrance-Free Lotion. This has been going viral everywhere because it is a really fantastic sunscreen. It's Australian, so I am a little bit um, patriotic (laughs) here. Um, Australia (laughs) does have the highest sunscreen standards. Like we have the strictest requirements for sunscreen approval because we just have so much skin cancer here. And yeah, Bondi Sands has passed this approval. Plus, it's also just really nice to use. Everyone is always so surprised by how lightweight it is. Um, And it is also four hours water resistant, which is great. Um, Although I think that becomes 80 minutes in the US because we have different rules for what's allowed to be claimed. Um, But yeah, that one's really excellent. A face sunscreen I really like um, that's available in the US is the Elta MD um, UV Mm. clear sunscreen. That one is quite nice and light as well. Um, But the Bondi Sands one, a lot of people have been using that on their face as well. If you live in Australia, I'm not sure how many of your listeners are from Australia, but um, our supermarket sunscreens are actually really nice. Um, Our supermarket Mm. sunscreens are about $10 for a litre. Wow, that's... I think it's like $2.20. That's that's pretty cheap, yeah. They are so cheap. It's ridiculous. So um, if you're in Australia, I highly, or if you're visiting Australia, I highly recommend just grabbing a $2 bottle because like you can't go wrong. It's $2. Um, If you don't like it for your face, use it on your body. But again, I've had lots of friends try it on their face and they love it. I've tried it on my face and it's quite good. Um, I am a bit of a snob with sunscreen now since I've tried so many, (laughs) but yeah, that's a really good one. A lot of people aren't aware of um, Asian sunscreens. Asian sunscreens are super lightweight. If If you hate the heaviness of sunscreen, I really recommend trying some Japanese or Korean sunscreens. The problem with those is that because they're, um, the way that Asian culture is, um, people tend to wear sunscreens every day. And so a lot of these sunscreens are meant for everyday use. They're not meant for heavy use. So these are sunscreens that you would wear to the office and not to the beach. So just be really aware of that when you choose one of these sunscreens. But there are lots of these that are great. There's one from Biore, which is really good and quite cheap. Um, there's one from Beauty of Choson, um, which is a Korean brand, which is my current favorite sunscreen. But yeah, there's tons of them. They are reasonably priced. Um, I think they're, they're less expensive than the specialist face sunscreens that you can get in the US, but they are a bit more expensive than um, 
say the body sunscreens, and they're obviously way more expensive than the Australian supermarket sunscreen. <laughs> supermarket sunscreen. <laughs> That's good to know. So one last question about, um, you know, sunscreen labeling and selection. So so there's the, um, there's the the seal, the Skin Cancer Foundation seal of recommendation. Is that something that we should be looking for? Does that label have a lot of meaning? Or, you know, are we really just focusing on SPF, water resistance, and broad spectrum? All right, Michelle, I think you've you've really, really elucidated a lot today about sunscreen, about ultraviolet radiation, about the risks of, you know, sun exposure, um, how to use sunscreen, what to seek in a sunscreen, um, dispelling a lot of the myths about, you know, the chemicals in sunscreen. Is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with today before we wrap up? I think this is probably a cliche, but the best sunscreen is the sunscreen you'll use. (laughs) So I think, yeah, one thing about sunscreen, a lot of people get obsessed with trying to find the perfect sunscreen and the sunscreen that has the highest protection. And in reality, if you like a sunscreen, it's going to work better than one that you don't like. And another thing I want to um, maybe emphasize is that sunscreen is not the only sun protection that you have. Um, Using sun protective clothing, using hats, sunglasses, um, shade is also really important. And you can sort of think about this sort of like those Swiss cheese layers of um, for risk reduction. So if you have several layers of imperfect sun protection, then that is probably going to give you pretty good sun protection overall. So layer your sun protections. Great point. Um, And you actually just reminded me of one last thing, not obviously specific to sunscreen, but what about eye protection? So I presume, yes, we want to protect our eyeballs and our eyelid skin. Um, I assume that we don't want to be applying sunscreen to our eyelids, or is that a misconception? Um, it's not great in terms of comfort. It's fine in terms of safety. So a lot of the time, if you put it around your eyes, it can go into your eyes and it can make your eyes water and sting. So one thing I do like is obviously sunglasses, like you mentioned, but also sunscreen sticks tend to be quite good. Um, so if you can find a zinc sunscreen stick, there's a really good one by Neutrogena. That's a really good option for around the eyes. Great, great point. And of course, if you're looking for sunglasses, try and also make sure that those shades have ultraviolet protection as well. And I think most sunglasses nowadays have that uh, built into the lenses. All right, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. This was an incredible episode. Um, I love that we're getting ready to launch this right as summer in the U.S. starts because that's when all of these questions pop up again. Um, Of course, if any of our listeners have more specific questions about sunscreen or skin care or cosmetic misinformation, please make sure to follow Michelle Wong um, at Lab Muffin Beauty Science. All right, Jess here. So you may have noticed that I dropped off about midway through this episode, and that was thanks to some technical issues. So sorry about that. But I'm back to talk about what we will cover on next week's episode of the pod. So next week, we will answer a bunch of questions that folks submitted about periods and period products. We're also going to debunk myths about tampons and pads. There is a lot of ground to cover. We'll discuss the history of feminine products and how they came to be. We'll spend some time talking about the safety and regulation of period products. Then we'll dive into some of the stigma surrounding tampon use in particular. We will definitely spend some time talking about MTSS, which is menstrual toxic shock syndrome, what it is, rates of MTSS in the population, and risk of of MTSS. And finally, we will spend some time addressing chemophobia surrounding these products and risks of quote unquote, natural alternatives. We have so much ground to cover that this will likely be a two-parter. So be sure to tune in to check that out. We will continue to provide updates on COVID-19 and other topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. I am a scientist. Yeah, uh, I am a scientist.